On our first episode of Catch-Up Canes, the Miami Hurricanes' all-new podcast, we'll be covering Queen Elizabeth II's death and how one UM student's family has ties to her, how Canes' football season has started off on the right foot with Mario Cristobal by their side, dominating in their first game and recently winning their second, a quick overview of Miami Spice, what it is, and a few suggestions of Miami restaurants participating in it, one student's opinion on what it means to quietly quit, and a special interview with NBC New York journalist Jen Maxfield on her new book, More After the Break. I'm Caroline Val, podcast editor for the Miami Hurricane, and you're listening to our first episode of Catch-Up Canes. Up first, top news stories this week are brought to you by Caroline Val. On Thursday, September 8th, news broke of the death of one of the longest reigning monarchs in history. Even campus seemed somber as strong gray thunderstorm clouds laid ominously overhead. As you walked through campus, there was one phrase that you could hear on everyone's lips. The queen is dead. In an effort to retain some student opinions on the queen's death, we talked to one student whose family has especially interesting ties to the queen. Her grandfather, after serving in the Royal Air Force, received the honor of member of the British Empire from the queen in person in the form of a medal. Her grandmother was knighted or damed as the female equivalent after serving as the head prosecutor for the royal family between 1992 to 1998, more specifically the first woman to be appointed as the director of public prosecutions. Here, we talk more with the student to find out the details. All right, hi Izzy, thanks for joining us today. So if you don't mind, could you go ahead and just start by introducing yourself to say your name, your major, your year, all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, sure. So my name's Izzy. I'm a political science and also a biology major. I'm a junior this year at University of Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit about me, my entire family is British. I was born in London and I, my family emigrated to the United States. Um, I've since gotten my citizenship, but you know, we have strong ties to London. So Very cool. Okay, so I mean, just kind of going off of an initial reaction, what were your thoughts when you heard about um, the Queen's passing yesterday? I was really shocked. I mean, death in itself is a really hard thing to kind of wrap your head around, but especially for such an influential and uh, just a figurehead that's been alive. I I know I'm pretty young, but you know, has been alive for my parents' life. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it, it just, it's hard to believe. I remember I kind of had that, like when your heart stops feeling. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, I mean, you kind of talked about we, we've talked a little bit outside of this, but I mean that your um, grandparents have had some interactions with the queen. So, I mean, can you talk about what those interactions were? Yeah, absolutely. So my maternal grandmother, she was knighted by the queen. Um, That was for her service as one of the public prosecutors for the crown. So that's a very high position. How do you even get a position like that? Honestly, so she, I can tell you a little bit about her. She was a very prestigious lawyer. She went to Oxford. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure how she was appointed to that position, okay. but I do know that she was seen as being really a trailblazer for um, like female lawyers for being appointed to such um, high up royal positions. That's like a really great honor. It's like being uh, the attorney general, kind of. Yeah. 
you know, and uh, for her service there, she was knighted or damed, I suppose, is the female equivalent of that. Yeah. And that is pretty much one of the highest civilian honors that you can get mm-hmm. in the United Kingdom. And essentially what that is, is that you kneel before the queen. Yeah. You, know, you meet her personally, and she knights you by um, placing a sword over your left and right shoulders. And so her new title is Dame Barbara Mills. That's so cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. Um, another thing about that is um, my other grandfather, my paternal grandfather, mm-hmm. he was given um, a medal which is called the Member of the British Empire. It's an MBE, essentially. You know, it, there's ranking, so there's like the knighthood, and then like a little bit below that is the MBE. Mm-hmm. And he got that for um, extensive years of charity work and service. So. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, have they described their experiences meeting the queen to you at all? And if so, what does that look like? Yeah, so I know from my my grandfather and I are pretty close, so he's talked about it. For him, obviously, it's a huge deal. Um, my grandfather spent his entire life in the Royal Air Force. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to meet the queen especially is a huge honor for him in that regard, even though this wasn't related to his military service. So he got... A letter saying that he had been awarded the medal mm-hmm. and uh, him, my grandmother, and my father, they all went to Buckingham Palace. Oh my god. pretty cool. Yeah. You know, everybody's dressed up. It's mm-hmm. very fancy. Um, I'm not sure exactly how the ceremony went. I, I know that she then just kind of placed the medal over your shoulder. You're supposed to bow to her. Um, I don't know. He's really excited about that. So it's very cool. It's displayed in his house. He's really proud of it. So. Yeah. What about your grandma? Did she kind of talk about her experience or no? Um, unfortunately, my grandmother died when I was pretty young as a child. So everything gotcha. that I know about her is kind of through my mother. I didn't find out until after her death that she had achieved all these things and was actually a really influential person. So unfortunately, I can't speak personally to that. That's okay. That's still a really cool thing to say happened in your family. But I mean, um, have you talked with your family? after the queen's death and if so what have those conversations looked like or with your friends or you know yeah absolutely so my dad kind of described this and this was his exact quote as the most monumental death in his entire lifetime with the exception of elvis presley fair enough like on the same level yeah and i was kind of like well why and he was like you know because the queen was such a figurehead of um you know stability and like public service and devotion mm-hmm. for uh, 70 years. Like that's a long time. And if you yeah. think about all the presidents, there was like 14 or 12 or 14 US presidents, I believe that served. So she served pretty mm-hmm. much from 1953 mm-hmm. until now. That is a huge amount huge. of time. Absolutely. And especially since the royal family, especially in the 90s, got through some a lot of turbulence with the uh, Princess Diana's death and divorce yeah. and stuff like that. And the fact that she And was, even now with Meghan Markle and Harry Oh, of course, there's leaving. been mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, you know, scandals. And the fact that she's just stayed strong, like, you know, you do well with a really strong leader. And despite yeah. her age, she's never really faltered from that position, I'd say. So mm-hmm. um, my grandfather obviously was really upset, um, I'd say, more so. He's very patriotic. Mm-hmm. You know, he gets that from his military service. Um, yeah, they're very sad. Um, I, I don't know if they'll travel down for the funeral I think so, probably to pay their respects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is definitely a big deal for the British public, is it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, those are really all my questions, but do you have anything else to add on, you know, your thoughts of the Queen's passing and stuff like that, or anything that your family's had related to her? Sure, I, I just think it's such a monumental thing. Like, I remember um, 
10 years ago when she had her Diamond Jubilee, I used to go to a British school back then, so we had a huge celebration. And we were li living in the States at that time and I went to a British school, but even the fact that we celebrated her Diamond Jubilee, like I hope that gives like some kind of insight of to just how influential that moment is. Mm -hmm. And then especially if you look at the clips of her Platinum Jubilee, there's so many people there. Like she's such, um, you know, she was really loved, I think for the most part by a lot of people. And uh, you know, I'm saddened by her passing, but yeah, may she rest in peace, basically. Sure. Um, so thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate the insight and I think our listeners will as well. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great. Up next is the sports section, brought to you by Quinn Sheehan. Original stories were written by Chris Damond and Zachary Maser. The Miami Hurricanes, led by first-year head coach Mario Cristobal, have gotten off to a hot start this season with wins over Bethune-Cookman and Southern Mississippi. Cristobal has over 20 years of D1 coaching experience and is a Miami native who played at the U as an offensive lineman, winning two national championships. In December, Cristobal agreed to a 10-year, $80 million contract to coach the Canes, with the expectation that they return to their former glory. As he put it himself in an interview with ESPN. When Miami is performing and rolling at a certain level, there's nothing like it. And uh, it's been proven under a, a number of different coaches. And But the key to all that was, was not the flashy stuff or proclamations or tweets or, you know, T-shirts. It was all about the work, man. The work done on Green Tree practice field. I, that thing looked like like a Pro Bowl, you know, on, on weekday afternoons and on weekend scrimmages. And I used to be a, a guy that went out there at every opportunity as a kid before high school and during high school to watch that work. And, and I loved it. I was completely attracted to it. But that was the recipe. Those were the ingredients and the formula to Miami being that type of a program. And those are the things that we've gotten back to and the things that we have to work at to get to that level. As a Miami native and an alumnus of the university, Cristobal is hopeful and determined to turn the program around. Optimism is high with a 2-0 star for the Hurricanes, but their first true test will come this Saturday against number 24 Texas A&M on the road. Now, we'll move on to opinion. Brought to you by me, Jaden Cohen. Simply put, many Americans cannot afford the luxury of coming into work every day and performing a job they enjoy. The current economic climate is characterized by the most mergers and acquisitions in American history. Workers now more than ever are being shoehorned into a corporate workspace. As a result, the new practice of quiet quitting is quickly gaining traction. And I'm here to tell you why it is a necessary component of corporate protest. Quiet quitting can be defined as compartmentalizing one's work and life. Those embracing this ideal feel no need to give 120% at work when 100% gets the job done efficiently and leaves them less burnt out. It essentially quits the formerly held belief that workers needed to subscribe to a quote, hustling culture where such effort was the norm. The reason why such a practice is necessary is because at current, the economic elite hold more power over the working class than ever. In fact, such a swath of the working class believing in hustle culture is a perfect example of this point. To quote former Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, work and life, quote, is not a balance, but a circle. It is very easy for a billionaire CEO to implore their employees to treat work and life as a circle. However, for the many Americans who already do not enjoy the work they were forced into by the economic system, this is an incredibly tone deaf request. Quiet quitting is just one part of a much larger battle. 
Many historians are calling the recent wave of drastic workplace changes the, quote, great resignation. Quiet quitting fits nicely into some of the more passive forms of resistance. The fact of the matter is that such resistance is incredibly important. Ideally, corporations would give employees a great deal more benefits than they currently receive. If the working class were to receive fairer wages, way more workplace benefits, stronger union rights, and other progressive rights, then quiet quitting would drastically go down. 2022 saw some of the most visceral union-busting tactics used by corporations ever, with Starbucks and Amazon being two particularly heinous oppressors of the worker. Just because a person is an employee of a particular company does not mean they have to pledge loyalty or add their work to their daily circle as Jeff Bezos would like. It is frankly greedy for corporations to expect 120% of their workers without giving them rights that they absolutely deserve. Resisting corporate greed is here to stay, and quiet quitting is merely the latest innovation in a constantly evolving landscape of worker resistance. To read the full article, head on over to themiamihurricane.com. My name is Jaden Cohen, and I am once again signing off. Now for Arts and Entertainment, brought to you by Quinn Sheehan. Stories were written by Morgan Fry. There's no lack of great food in the city of Miami, incorporating multiple cultures' best cuisines into one city. The issue for many, however, is often the price. Most college students are justifiably not willing to spend hundreds of dollars on one meal. However, for the 21st straight year, Miami Spice aims to solve that problem. From now until September 30th, many restaurants across Miami are offering discounted prices for people to enjoy a three-course meal at their establishments. The over 200 participating restaurants are offering around 30 to 40% off their normal prices. This is very advantageous to University of Miami students, as Caroline Mortensen puts it. You know, what I like about Miami Spice is that the lunches are like $28. Like, so mm-hmm. I feel like they're affordable for students. Like if they're going to go to a nice restaurant and have a nice lunch, because mm-hmm. you get like the appetizer, the entree, and a dessert. Um, so I think like for the price, like college students are probably getting more value out of that maybe than adults are. Like I think for the adults, it's like it brings them into the restaurant and then they do like I did, like order off the spice menu. Uh-huh. But I think for students, they're going to be like much more. And it's nice too, like they'll be restrictive and say if one person is ordering from the spice menu, then everyone has to order from the spice menu. So everybody feels like comfortable, you know, at an expensive restaurant knowing exactly how much you're going to pay when you walk out. So I think that gives a lot of value to the students. It's like you're sort of all in it together. It should be noted that these discounts are not available at many of the restaurants on Fridays and Saturdays. Some of the participating restaurants include Fiola, Hutong, and Swan and Bar Bevy. Interview featured was with Caroline Mortensen, the Associate Dean of Business Programs and Professor of Health Management and Policy. For more information on Miami Spice, check out this article as featured on the Miami Hurricane website. For this week's special segment, we spoke with Jen Maxfield, Emmy Award-winning reporter and anchor for NBC New York, as well as an adjunct professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. She recently visited Books and Books in Coral Gables to hold a book signing for her new book, More After the Break, where she revisits 10 stories she's covered throughout her 20-plus year career more in depth. Here is our interview now. Jen Maxfield, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us today and speaking with us, the Miami Hurricane. 
So if you don't mind, just go ahead and sort of introduce yourself, what you do as a reporter, and maybe go ahead and give just a brief synopsis about your book. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me and taking the time. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. So yeah, I'm a reporter with NBC in New York. I'm also a fill-in anchor, so people can see me anchoring different broadcasts on our station. In addition to that, I'm an adjunct professor at Columbia Journalism School, where I teach broadcast journalism. And this past summer, I wrote and came out my first book, which is called More After the Break, A Reporter Returns to 10 Unforgettable News Stories. And the premise of the book really grew out of a lot of my conversations with my students. And they had really pressed me on some of the topics that I discussed in class, including doing interviews with people on what might be the worst or the most chaotic days of their lives. And for a long time, I've been thinking about writing a book. And it occurred to me that after putting these stories out on the air for all of these years, I've been a TV news reporter for 22 years. There were so many people who I met at news scenes and I approached them with my microphone and I sat in their living room and I interviewed them during these really impactful days for them. And I put a 90 second story out on the air and the next day I moved on to another story. And so for the 10 people and the families I featured in this book, these are people I really felt deserved more, that their stories deserved more. And even that the reader, the audience deserved more too, because there was so much more to say and so much more to write about these people. Interesting. Okay. Amazing. So, I mean, just to start off, you know, with the basics and everything like that, I know everybody has their own path, um, especially to journalism. So what kind of drew you into the field and into the career to begin with? Sure. So I actually went to college at Columbia in New York as a pre-med student. I did a lot of team sports growing up. And my dad is a doctor and I admire him greatly and I wanted to be just like him. So my career goal as a kid and as a teenager was to be a sports medicine physician. But I always wrote for my school newspaper. I wrote for the school newspaper at my high school and also at Columbia for the Columbia Daily Spectator. And then sort of on a whim, I applied for an internship at CNN at the United Nations my junior year. And I was placed there with a correspondent named Gary Tuckman, who's still a CNN national correspondent to this day. And Gary was an incredible mentor for me in the news business for two reasons. In the first place, he let me go with him to news conferences, ask questions of diplomats. Here I am, I'm 20 years old, and I'm raising my hand in news conferences at the United Nations. It was incredible. He'd let me write the first draft of his CNN radio stories. But then the second part of what made Gary such an incredible mentor was the compassion and the empathy that he brought to the job. And I remember I interviewed him for my book and he told me a story about how he has an address book and some days he'll just open it up and find a name and number and call the person. He had recently called somebody who he interviewed back in 1995 after the Oklahoma City bombing. And Remember, Gary's not calling these people for another interview. He's not calling them to try to do a follow-up story. He's actually just calling to see how people are doing and to convey that message that they were more than an interview and they meant more to him than just that one news story that day. And I just think that learning from somebody like that made such a huge impact for me. And 
so as I said, I, I was taking pre-med classes at Columbia. My junior year, I switched over to political science and uh, yeah, I just got started in the news business at that time. That's amazing. Okay. So, I mean, could you talk a little bit about, obviously not all the stories because it's a lot and people want to read the book, but maybe what resonated with you about a couple of the stories that you chose to feature in the book and just a little bit about why you felt they needed a little bit more of a platform? Sure. So I'll, I'll actually go to the last chapter of the book, which is chapter eight, and it's called Free at Last. And there was a young man named Chris Clemente, who was an undergraduate finance student at business school at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania, one of the top business schools in the country. And Chris had gone home to visit his brother and his family in Harlem. And Chris had gone to his brother's apartment. And unfortunately, Chris's brother had taken a different path in life and he had been dealing drugs and the police came to the brother's apartment while Chris was there. And Chris was arrested and charged with the drug and weapons possessions because of the items in the apartment. So here we have this young man, he's a straight A student, a student at the Warden School of Business at UPenn, and he was sentenced under New York's Rockefeller drug laws to 16 years to life. And when I was a student at Columbia Journalism School, I made a documentary about mandatory minimum sentencing. And my documentary partner and I went to Greenhaven, a maximum security men's prison in upstate New York. And we interviewed Chris and told his story. The Rockefeller drug laws have since been overturned. They were overturned back in 2009. And it gives me so much pleasure to say that Chris is not only out of prison at this point, but he is also a CPA, a certified public accountant. He owns his own accounting firm. He helps wow. people with their taxes. And in addition to running a nonprofit charity to help people whose kids have been impacted by blood cancer. So you can imagine, you know, back in 2000, the story was about Chris's arrest and the incredibly long sentence he got and how his father was trying to get him his sentence reduced and how he felt he never should have been there in prison in the first place. And that was sort of chapter one of the story. But the beauty and the joy of this book in many ways for me, and I hope for the readers too, is being able to tell the rest of the story. Look at the success that this person has had after getting out of prison and look at all the amazing things that have happened. And, and that never was on the news to begin with, or even part of my student documentary. So that's really been an incredible thing to have the benefit of hindsight and the context to be able to say, yes, this is the issue that landed this person in the headlines to begin with. But now look at what they've done to get through that adversity. Absolutely. So just out of curiosity, are there any stories that you feature in your book that you feel could resonate a little bit more with the Miami community as well? Yes, I do think there's one that that you might find interesting because I know that, you know, Miami is such an international city and there's there's really an incredible story. And, and I don't think it's necessarily resonating with Miami in particular, but just think with people in general. When I back in 2011, it was the Monday after Thanksgiving and I reported a story about a little girl named Eurelis Bonilla. Eurelis at the time was only five years old and she was very, very sick. 
She had no hair because she'd been undergoing chemotherapy. She had a very aggressive form of blood cancer. And the reason I was covering the story that day and sitting in her apartment in Elizabeth, New Jersey, interviewing this beautiful child who was suffering was because Eurelis needed a bone marrow transplant and the family had tested everybody and there was one perfect donor. And that person was her seven-year-old sister, Giselle. But there was one problem, and that was that Giselle lived in El Salvador and with the grandmother. Mm-hmm. And the family, if you can believe it, had applied for humanitarian parole twice, and Giselle was denied both times. Wow. She was denied access to the United States in order to donate bone marrow to save her sister's life. And so we went and we covered the story, and I remember... It's so clearly because Giselle is the same age as my son. And so here I am, I'm a mom, I have a child the same age. I have the privilege of having a healthy child. And here I am interviewing a little girl who was really suffering. And I really connected with her mother, Maria. And I understood that that fighter instinct to try to do everything she could to save her daughter, but there was just nothing the family could do. So I, I'm, proud to say that the story that I and other journalists worked on that Monday, we aired a Monday night talking about the fact that the family could not get through the immigration red tape to bring Giselle to the United States. And by Friday, the U.S. government had reversed its position and Giselle got permission to come into the U.S. and she was able to donate bone marrow to her sister the following month. And that was the last we ever heard of the story that the transfer, the transplant had happened and Giselle went back to El Salvador and that was it. And what I really learned in the course of researching the book is just how much had happened in the last 10 years and the incredible journey that both Eurelis and Giselle have taken this last decade. But you can imagine, I'm sure, as a journalism student yourself, how difficult it was to find and track down Eurelis and her family when she was only five years old when I first interviewed her. Yeah, what was that like? <laughs> that must have been a really interesting process. I wound up having to, I wound up finding her grandfather. Okay. And I figured out where her grandfather worked. Mm-hmm. And it was a coffee shop in New Jersey. And so I wound up going to the coffee shop. And then I had to write him a letter and try to explain why an adult woman was looking to interview his now 15-year-old granddaughter. And frankly, when I when I first left the letter, I didn't even know if Eurelis was still alive. Because as I said, the last we knew, she had gotten the bone marrow from her sister, but we didn't understand anything about what happened to her after that. And so I'm happy to say she's alive and well, but there's a lot more to that story that, that people can certainly read about in the book. Sure. Okay. Well, we're not going to give too much away. (laughs) But I also understand that you just came down recently for a book signing event, right? At Books and Books? Yes. I was at Books and Books at the end of August for, I mean, that's an amazing store. Yeah, no, I love Books and Books. I'm a frequent consumer. It's such an institution in the community, and I'm just so grateful for independent bookstores like that. And So it was amazing for me to be there and just to be a part of that institution in the community. And what also made that event really special for me is that the person who was interviewing me and running the Q&A at Books and Books is Caroline Coles. And I met Caroline 
when she was a student at Columbia Journalism School and also an intern at NBC in New York. Oh and gosh, so here okay. we are, fast forward five years later, and she's a morning news anchor in West Palm Beach. And she's gone from being my student to my colleague and just speaks volumes about the importance and really the value of mentorship. And, and that just meant so much to me, you know, that someone who I've kept in touch with and coached and mentored over the years to have her running the program in the state where she lives and where she's on the news. That was that was really amazing for me. For sure. Well, speaking of mentorship, I know that you said you've had quite a lot of years in the journalism industry and whatnot. So, I mean, do you have any advice that journalism students or any journalism adjacent students, so like people in communications and stuff like that, anything that they should know? Absolutely. So I'm going to give you two answers to your question. The Mm -hmm. first one will address the advice to people and the second one, people going into the industry and then the second one sort of more general advice. So the first piece of advice for people who are interested in journalism or communications Look, your generation has a lot of knowledge and experience, whether you know it or not, but the older generation knows the value of what you know, and that is that you have grown up on camera, you've had a camera on your phone for pretty much your whole life, you've grown up with YouTube and creating content, and you view that as a second nature in a way that people of my generation and older do not. And the authenticity that you bring to telling stories and to interviewing people, I think the value of that cannot be overstated. And so I hope that people who are starting out recognize that you really do have something very important to share with the world. And a lot of that is the way you tell stories and the more authentic way that you not only present yourself, but the way that you present other people. And so I think that's really important. And also just being flexible would be another piece of advice because I've had a number of students who have said, I only want to be a producer or I only want to be a reporter. And I see several years after that they're not always doing what they were sure they were going to do. So if you can train yourself and and learn about a number of different aspects of the business, I think you're setting yourself up for success in a different way where you're able to do a number of roles and that way, whatever job presents itself and and whatever way these stories are conveyed, you're in a position to tell them. And then the other thing that I would love to share is just that I think a lot of times when you, I'm 45 years old. So sometimes when you see somebody like me and I've had a great career and a lot of amazing things have happened. And so when you look at my resume, you might think, wow, that person's had a lot of success. And and that part of it's true. But I also think it's important to talk about some of the failure that I've had. And the fact that when I graduated from journalism school in the year 2000, I I sent out 65 VHS resume tapes. We actually had to send tapes at the time, okay? (laughs) Yeah. So there there was no YouTube, there's no Vimeo. I had to actually send physical tapes. Mm -hmm. And I sent out 65 tapes to news directors all around the country. And I waited for the calls and the emails to come in. And would you believe not a single news director called me back? Not one, zero. So listen, I could have given up. I could have said, well, I guess nobody thinks I'm going to be a good reporter. And I guess nobody thinks I'm good on air. So forget it. 
but I chose to not be deterred. Believe me, I was upset. That was not an easy time, but I reached out to the people in my network and to people who maybe were just a couple years older than I was and had started in the news business. And they gave me the advice, go on a road trip and call some of those news directors when you actually arrive in their city and say, I just so happen to be in Binghamton, New York. Do you have five minutes for me? And that is how I got my job, my first job on air in Binghamton, New York. But I would just say generally that there are always going to be people who say no to you. There are always going to be people who tell you that you're not good enough and you have to really know in your heart what your goal is and continue trying to pursue it regardless of what you feel that the universe is telling you. And, and even writing this book, there have been times in the last year or two where I have felt in some ways like it was back in the year 2000 when I was sending out those tapes where maybe people weren't interested in the concept or they weren't interested in doing a book event or it wasn't going to work for their bookstore. And I'm at the point now where if someone is saying no to me or someone's rejecting my idea, I feel that I must be working pretty hard and I must be doing the right thing. Because if everything seems too easy, you're probably not doing that interesting work. And so I actually had a little post-it note on my computer throughout the time that I was writing my book. And on it, it said, out of comfort zone. And the reason that I looked to that post-it and the reason I kept it on my computer where I could see it every day when I was writing is because I really do feel that stepping outside your comfort zone and putting yourself out there and preparing to be rejected on some level, that is where the magic happens. And that's where the growth happens. And if, I just feel that if you can challenge yourself in that way, that, that you really will be rewarded by doing interesting work that matters to people. And I would tell people in the interviews, I'd say, no detail is too small. Mm -hmm. So feel free to share those details with me because I think when you're reading the book, you do feel a sense of actually being in the story. I had one person tell me, I had to remind myself that these stories actually happened, that this was nonfiction because they felt it was so vivid and that the it was so true to life. But actually, the, the greatest review I've received on the book and probably the greatest one I'll ever receive is from the mother of one of the people who I write about. And her son tragically was killed in a terrorist attack in New York in 2017. And she said when she read the chapter that I wrote about her son, she said it was so vivid and so true to life that she felt like he was sitting right next to her on the couch. Oh, wow. That was, that was just an amazing review and, and just incredible feedback to get. It really speaks to the whole purpose behind the book project. For sure. I think that would personally break my heart, honestly, as a journalist. It's, it's so interesting because with the job, you, know, you really have to walk I know being a human and being empathetic, but also, you know, getting your job done and trying to, like you said, condense it in either a 90 second package or, you know, writing it as a really quick article just to kind of get the gist of something. But I, you know, I'm going to have an opportunity to, to read the book. So I'm going to be really interested in how you kind of really outline everything and, and put the audience really into these stories. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to the fact that there it's sort of demystifying the news business in the sense of there's a human being on the other side of that microphone. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not just interviewing people. We're not news robots, right? I mean, we are changed by these stories. We are changed by being with people on these days, these impactful days of their lives. And, and I also think I've been changed by the trust that people have put in me over the past two decades of trusting me with their stories and knowing that the story that I report on the news is really the legacy of their person or their experience. I mean, there's a great quote that I think about, and, and you've probably heard it as a journalism student, but that it says that news is the first rough draft of history. And I, I do see that as our mission. We're trying to inform the public, but we are with people and we are, are next to them when in many cases when they are suffering. And so I think it was important to write about that aspect of the business too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Jen. I really, really appreciate it on a personal level and as, you know, a contributor to the Miami Hurricane. Once again, the book is called More After the Break. And uh, yeah, I hope you have a great rest of your day and thank you so much. This episode of Catch-Up Canes was brought to you by the Miami Hurricane. Music is conducted by Aiden Lalonde. We thank you for listening, and we hope you'll be back for our next episode. Go Canes!